Welcome to Breaking Through. I'm Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and I'm bringing you this podcast from a new research lab on the fourth floor of the Leonard and Madeline Abramson Research Building. This lab was specially designed to encourage collaboration among different teams of scientists so they can share ideas more easily. It's a really innovative space, and it'll serve as a model for many new research labs that we'll be building in the coming years. My guest today is Dr. Beverly Davidson. Dr. Davidson is the director of the Raymond G. Perlman Center for Cellular and Molecular Therapeutics at CHOP. She's a world-renowned neuroscientist, and she's also an expert in gene therapy. Dr. Davidson was recently elected to the National Academy of Medicine. This is one of the highest honors a scientist can receive. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Davidson to Breaking Through. Dr. Davidson, congratulations on being elected to the National Academy of Medicine. The Academy specifically recognizes the work you're doing to develop therapies for inherited brain disorders. Can you begin by telling the listeners more about your work? Sure, and thank you. Um, Madeline, it's, it's an honor to be here and to chat with you about my science and other topics. So the work that I do has really sprung from my interest in trying to better understand how inheriting different disease genes will impact the, either the development of the brain or induce neurodegeneration of the brain as a person ages. And my early work was all in trying to understand childhood onset brain disorders. First of all, what's wrong? Why does the brain not develop or degenerate prematurely when a certain disease allele is present? And how can we then use gene therapy to put that gene back in? And from there, we began to think about ways to take away bad genes in methods known as gene silencing. So my work spans from gene addition approaches with gene therapy as well as gene knockdown approaches with gene therapy. And we've been working the better part of 20 years trying to perfect these methods and move these into patients. I like the way you framed gene therapy in a more simplistic way, and it's really one of the hottest areas of medicine right now, and there are so many scientists here at CHOP that are focusing on gene therapy breakthroughs. Can you tell our listeners what some of the investments are that we've been making here at CHOP under your direction? Sure. The investments that CHOP has made in the cell and gene therapy space has really been I think, trend-setting for the entire cell and gene therapy community across the country. Early on, CHOP invested in a manufacturing facility to develop products that could be used to put gene therapy vectors into people. Some of the examples that our listeners may be familiar with are the vectors that were used to treat inherited forms of blindness that is now an approved therapy for a retinal disorder as well as vectors that were used to treat patients for hemophilia. Those are still in progress. From the cell therapy side, the manufacturing facility that, again, was put into place here at CHOP and recently expanded on in a new and improved manufacturing facility was used to improve our ability to treat cancers. And I think without CHOP's involvement and support of the infrastructure needs to make this happen, we'd be watching from the sidelines. 
Well, it's really exciting to be part of pioneering work in gene therapy. And you mentioned earlier what you were studying as a neuroscientist are brain disorders and those that show up in children but might manifest as adults like Alzheimer's. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The work I do in children are known as the lysosomal storage disorders, where a certain protein is missing. And we began developing tools to put those genes back. And the way it applies to Alzheimer's is sort of securitous, if you will. We figured that if we could develop these tools to put the genetic material into the brain, to provide the entire brain with this now missing protein, Maybe we could apply this to adult onset disorders. And it turns out my colleagues across the country, this is not my independent research, of course, on Alzheimer's disease, figured out that there's a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease that is a secreted protein. So I used the vectors to put a missing gene back in for children with lysosomal storage diseases. Well, let's swap out those genes for this gene that is a risk factor for Alzheimer's and maybe use the same technology and the same technological approach to treat individuals at risk for Alzheimer's disease. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And to be a children's hospital working on diseases that manifest later in life. So there's so much happening in science here at CHOP and in the nation. What excites you most? I think the excitement that is really taking hold here at CHOP is that we've come together as a community. The leadership has been so supportive in building up the infrastructure for us to take cell and gene therapy to the next level. We've created a consortium of scientists here at CHOP to think critically about what do we do well and what are we missing and how do we fill in those missing pieces. There's an energy to go out and tap the young physicians, physician scientists, and scientists that we have on our campus to think about what's a key thing that I can contribute to cell and gene therapy that's not being done at this point. I think the energy here is palpable, and that's what I'm most excited about. That's terrific. So we were lucky enough to recruit you from Iowa. Why did you choose to come to CHOP? Well, it's an unprecedented opportunity for me to really advance my science and take part in the broader cell and gene therapy community here, as well as just the breadth and depth of neuroscientists that are residents of this campus at CHOP. The other probably undersold feature of this community are the amazing number of accomplished women scientists and women mentors that are both at Penn and at CHOP. And our ability to recruit here, I think, is unprecedented because of that. Well, you hit on something that's near and dear to my heart, advancing women who are underrepresented, particularly in the area of science, where you're a pioneer and I'm sure serve as a great mentor and as somebody who helps us to recruit women scientists. And how did you decide to become a scientist? Well, I don't know if one decides their career path as much as they are uh, born into it almost. And I've always been interested in things, everything. You know, I subscribed to Scientific American as a child. I was interested in archaeology and geology and the climate. My father was a small town physician. I followed him around to the hospital. We helped him, we kids would help him 
you know, set fractures or calm children while he was treating them. Then when we weren't following around my dad or bothering my mother, who was a nurse, we were out and about in the community turning up frogs or fishing or just exploring nature as uh, we were fairly free to do so in the plains of southern Nebraska, where I grew up. When I went to school, college, I was very interested in science from the get-go. Started working in a lab my freshman year in college and then became TA for any science class that they would hire me for. Chemistry, biology, zoology, general biology, tutored in the sciences. And when it came time to choose a career, one of my professors said, why don't you get your PhD? And I said, that sounds like a great idea. And that's exactly what I did. Well, it sounds like you had incredible curiosity. And so maybe young women who are also very curious will see being a scientist as a good career opportunity. You mentioned the fact that as part of CHOP and Penn, there are more women. And I'm wondering if you are mentoring women and what role do you think that plays in helping them to be more like you in the future? I think the women we recruit to the CHOP and Penn community are just phenomenal. My role in helping them is to make sure that they know what opportunities are available for them. When I went through the system, there were very few women role models. Now there are many. And just by having a large cadre of individuals, some with families, some without, with very diverse communities from all across the board, I think there are so many individuals to interact with, to serve on mentoring committees, to provide guidance, to help with interpersonal relations, or just odd things that come up as a woman scientist, as a woman with a career, as you struggle with family and working through the professional promotional system. And you, I'm sure, have been mentored in your career. I'm wondering if you could share with us some good advice that you have had in the past from your mentors. Yeah, I think the best advice that I got from my mentors who remain my mentors to this day are to follow your passions, your scientific passions, continue to be innovative, and to not let others dictate your science. Because as soon as your science is dictated by some external force, you lose the sense of innovation and creativity that's driven you to where you are today. And so to maintain your passion and to continue to be true to your science and true to yourself. I think that's great advice. So Dr. Davidson, you've been really instrumental in helping us to reimagine the lab space of the future. In fact, we're sitting in one of your new innovative spaces. Can you tell me what's different about this space and how it'll help our scientists to collaborate better? So the space that we're sitting in was redesigned from an older research space that had many brick-and-mortar walls that created many small rooms that divvied up space into small, discrete units. We essentially blew that up and now are in a very large, expansive, open, collaborative space that is, in addition to the standard traditional lab space that you think about, you and I are sitting at benches with tissue culture rooms and rooms for microscopes and rooms for freezers. 
it's sitting right next to a big open work area where dry lab type informatics research can be done. And today's science environment is so intertwined in taking ideas from patient data or from large-scale genomic data sets or other sorts of artificial intelligence or machine learning data, and then going to the lab to test those hypotheses. So running back and forth between the computer and the bench has become a new norm of how we will be doing science. And we need to take better advantage of that. And so we designed this space so that it's an open, fluid, collaborative environment that allows teams of scientists to work together towards problems as opposed to one investigator, one problem. So I always ask my guests to share a breakthrough moment in their career. And given what you've described, sounds like you've had a lot of breakthroughs, but was there one sort of situation that you could share with us that was really a, a breakthrough moment for you? That's a hard one. It seems that they come about once a decade. And as a graduate student, the aha moment was figuring out how to manufacture a vector and put it into a brain and to show that we could express a gene product. And it was, wow, maybe we can cure diseases. The next decade, I would say it was perfecting how to really manufacture these tools to get genes into the brain. More recently here at CHOP, we've made discoveries that I think are going to be really profound for the cell and gene therapy community. And we hope to share this with the broader community in the coming months, but we believe that we have figured out how to regulate the expression of genes, which is going to be very important as we think about putting genes back in that have to be just at the right level, not too much and not too little, or we really do the individual no good. And also, if we're going to knock a disease gene down, we need to knock it down to a certain level. Again, not too much and not too little. And that's been another breakthrough moment for me. So I hope they continue to come. As I said, about once a decade, we'll see how many more decades we can keep rolling. I really like the way you talked about decades or chapters that, you know, maybe it's not just one and done, but that there's something really to look forward to in terms of that next breakthrough and your pursuit of that next breakthrough. Well, we're thrilled to have you here as our chief strategy scientific officer at CHOP and a woman scientist, internationally renowned and a mentor, and also um, somebody that's really focusing and helping us get to the next level of gene therapy. So that's all the time we have for today. Dr. Davidson, I want to thank you for joining me to learn more about how you can be part of tomorrow's breakthroughs at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Please visit chop.edu slash giving at CHOP. We make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.